Welcome to the England Athletics Podcast. My name's Tony Minicello. You're listening to me. I'm not sure why. <laughs> when I broke the record at under-17 national champs, I got a voucher. It was a £100 voucher and I was so happy. Because at that time, in the club, is a box of spikes and I was using spikes from that box. So if you look at the US trials, there is prize money and people are saying, oh, we should have prize money at the England champs, the British champs. What about the other 16 that were involved in the event? How do you incentivize them? The power of 10 at the moment sort of ranks it by pure performance, but is there other measures that we can use to show somebody actually, I might be ranked 5,000th in the country, but actually I've improved massively and the rest of the world can see my improvement as well. Welcome to the 10th edition of the England Athletics podcast. We are recording from the Manchester Athletics Arena on the first morning of the 2019 EA Senior Track and Field Championships. Joining me are some special guests who have agreed to share a platform to discuss all things track and field participation. EA recently conducted some research with a specific focus on those athletes moving through their teenage years. With 73% of all track and field performances recorded by those aged 11 to 19, there was a noticeable decline in the number of participants aged between 13 to 16. With a lot of choice for young people as well as trying to balance sport with exam time and one eye on future university or career choices. England Athletics wants to understand more about this trend to try and deal with it and keep more people in the sport for longer, whatever their aspiration or ability. So with me to discuss this subject are world-class multi-events coach and athletics commentator, Tony Minicello, head of coaching and athlete development, Martin Rush, and former race walker, England Athletics head of major events and chair of the British Athletics League, Dean Hardman, athletes, Abigail Arosaru and Naomi Ogbita in the Great Britain team for the European Team Championships and have represented England as well in the past. You're all very welcome. Starting with you, Tony, are you surprised by the findings? Not really. I think they're indicative of what happens within a lot of sports. Athletics isn't just the only one that this occurs. Other sports find exactly the same. It, what you're referring to as churn, other sports are calling half-life at the ages of 16, 19, and then 23. So what you're finding is if you have 100 people at 16, it becomes 50 at 19, and then at 23, that becomes whatever half of 50 is. 25, there you go. So... <laughs> Maths was never my strong point, which is a sad thing when you consider I'm in multi-events and points are critical. So, yeah, I think the question is why it happens in athletics and what we can do about it. Do you think this is a modern day issue or do you think we've always had challenges? I think the challenges have always been there. I think it's just now that we're tending to count them. I don't think historically we did the amount of data research work that you're now doing at England Athletics and British Athletics are looking at. And with power of 10... It, it's much easier to spot and track these things, so anybody can see it. So I think we're just we're just becoming alive to probably what was already there. Turning to you, Naomi, why did you get involved in the sport in the first place? I got involved through school, so I was faster than most of the boys and the girls, of course. So the kind of a teacher said that I should join an athletics club, but I didn't really think much of it because I was so into doing drama and other stuff. Um, so then a bit later, when I was about I think 14 or something, uh, my mum kind of Googled athletics clubs and then I joined Salford Mets. Um, and then I went to English schools. I came 26 out of 27th and I was like, I don't want to do 200 metres anymore. And my dad said, OK, why don't you try triple jump instead? Because it seemed like it was an easier one to be better at. Um, so, yeah, I tried triple jump and then I broke the under 17 record. Didn't your dad also compete in the triple jump? 
Yes. <laughs> yeah, my dad used to do triple jump and when he was in uni, so that's kind of why he thought I should try it. He did win Northerns as well, and he won Northerns in long jump, but Jonathan Edwards was um, breaking records then, so my dad <laughs> had a bit of a chance to win some titles. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how I got into athletics. And in terms of balance, doing other things outside of athletics, how important to you is finding balance, finding other things that you're interested in? I think it's different for everyone but I know for me like I've never really considered myself as an athlete first it's just I'm just a person who's very good at triple jump um, so I've always kind of been interested in so many different things and I think a lot of the younger athletes are starting to get interested in other things I see loads of them vlogging and um, like recording videos and YouTube and stuff for English skills so I do think a lot of athletes are kind of getting used to that balance you know athletics kind of exists for a small period of your life and then there's so many other things that you can do and explore outside of it so I do think it is quite important but it just depends on the person. And Abigail, your backstory, tell us a bit more. I got involved in athletics when I was about 14 or 15 years old. I started because I had been participating in Air Training Corps, which is like the mini RAF. And there was an event there and I did the 4x100, I did the 100, the 200 and the long jump. And it just so happened that my old coach was there and he told me to come down to Sports City because I absolutely demolished the field in all of the events. So it's a little bit different to how Naomi started. And then the following year, I went to English schools when I was... 16 I think and the following year after that I went to I represented Great Britain so it seemed like a really accelerated growth period but actually what happened was that I was super interested in loads of different sports anyway so I've always been participating in different sports from the age of like two or three my mum threw me into gymnastics dance all types of dance I shot rifles I've flown planes I, I don't know, I've just every single sport that you can imagine, netball, hockey, and it doesn't mean that I'm, I was good at them, but I just had a lot of experience across a broad range of sports. And Martin, head of coaching, athlete development, former Olympian. How important do you think a grounding in multi-events or multi-discipline activity is for a youngster coming into the sport for the first time? We've just heard two really successful athletes here. The similarity between both of them is that they were involved in lots of other activities uh, and retaining that interest, that motivation and not specialising too early. Obviously for these two has had a massive impact on where they've got to. Um, so unless you've got balance, I don't probably think you're going to make the best of your abilities that you can do and stay in the sport as long as you could do. If you look at our sport, it does tend to pigeonhole you right at the beginning. So if you do a coaching award, it's in run, it's in jumps, it's in throws, it's very specific. So if you look at the way our sport is set up, even though we know that a multi-event background and and doing lots of different things is, is important, the sport still is geared up to pigeonhole you quite early. And I think a lot of kids come into the sport, children come in knowing what their outcome is going to be. I've, I've turned up to be a 1500 meter runner and I think seldom they break that mould. Jess hated multi-events when she started. She wanted to be a sprinter and you kind of had to force her to, to do the throws and, and stuff like that. And over time it was like she saw that come to a fruition. You don't know what you don't know until you experience these other events. I'm sure Naomi had, yeah, dad did triple jump, but I don't really want to be like dad. But then yeah, go on, let me give this a go. And then you go, oh, I love the event, and, and look at the success from there. So I'm going to use the example of Christy and Taylor, triple jumper, 
But when he started, he was also competing in the 400 metres. So I went to World Youth with him and he was in 2007. And he was competing at such a high level in the 400 metres, the 4x400 metres. I think he might have done the 4x1 relay as well as the triple jump. And he might have done the long jump as well. So it was crazy. He was doing all of these different events. So I think even at a high level, you don't have to specialise. And I think actually I personally regret specialising so early. I came and competed for Sale Harriers straight away. And so it was where there was a space to compete in the YDL. So maybe that's what happens to a lot of athletes. Maybe they just kind of, like he said, you get pigeonholed because there's no space in the other, in the other events because they're maybe not quite good enough to compete at that level. You know, in team sports, you know, you might have a child playing football. You get them to try every position on the pitch. It's less easy in team sports to really quantify or evidence whether somebody has absolutely performed brilliantly in one position. It's a sort of subjective coach's view that you might say, well, that person's played well as a striker or as a, as a midfielder. In athletics, because of power of 10 and because of the way the sport is measured, you can very quickly see what somebody is excelling at. And there's then a natural tendency to try and encourage them down that particular path whereas other sports because it's less easy to quantify it's a bit easier to get people to try lots of things at the start. I think it was the world school the world schools championships the athletes who got selected they had to do one track and one field event so there's a girl in my um, group well she wasn't in my group but she was a hurdler and then she had to come and join my group for a bit to do a bit of long jump so she went and did both and she just really enjoyed doing the two events so it's a bit more of a challenge for them because they had to quickly go and learn another event or at least improve the other event so I do think it could be quite good if we kind of maybe brought something like that in. And not only that because I was in the group at the time I saw that actually she had a lot of talent in the long jump so it's kind of like you're scouting so it's not just that you're having fun but also oh gosh Here's my competitive mindset coming. <laughs> also, you're seeing this amazing long jumper maybe in the future. So just thinking about competition, Dean Hardman, chair of the British Athletics League, also oversees all the uh, England organised and funded competitions. What more do you think providers of competition could be doing in this space? I think as a sport, we all face similar problems in getting that balance right between what resources we have available to actually put on competitions because there isn't a bottomless pit of money making them engaging and enjoyable the atmosphere at the event whether there is music and then there's the format itself so from an event presentation point of view I think we could all do a lot better in terms of making every competition feel like an event feel like something that an athlete young or old wants to be part of and Naomi's raised a point about how you can come up with scoring or, or competition conditions that, that encourage people to try as many events as possible. You know, one of the conversations that I know is happening at, at, within the YDL at the moment, the Youth Development League, is how can that competition evolve to encourage people to do more than one event? You know, what we don't want is, and this, this applies at senior level as well, people travelling long distances, length and breadth of the country for 10 seconds of, of competition uh, or one or two jumps. I've spoken a lot lately about the different audiences within the sport or the different groups of athletes. Historically, our sport's fantastic at, at putting all athletes, from elite athletes down to, if you like, recreational athletes, all in the same competitions, which is one of its virtues. I remember my partner saying when she first represented her county at the Intercounty, she got there and Linford Christie was warming up. She suddenly thought, well, I've made it now. You know, I'm, I'm an athlete, I'm at an event, and Linford Christie's competing here, and we want to try and retain that we want the youngsters who come to our championships today and, and tomorrow to think wow I've entered a competition and Naomi Ogbita's in, in the same competition as me and she's going next week to the European team championships Abigail Rizuru's in in the long jump and I'm competing against so we want them to, to experience that 
But generally speaking, we need to produce formats that suit the athletes at the stage of development that they're at and not just feel that it's a one-size-fits-all approach would be my view. I've been on the competition review panel that completed it in 2015 and we knew then timetables are too long, travel distances are too far. If, if you break sport down to its basic part, which is a youngster turns up, they want to play the game, whatever that is, they want to be involved. And then what we do is we enter them in the vast majority of competition where there's only two people in the 100. But how many 100-meter sprinters do you see at under 15 level at a club? It's more than two. And the same. So the opportunities to play the game are so restricted, it's untrue. So you kind of like, we know what the problems are. We've just never had the courage to step forwards and make the change. Could you provide something else? This is, this is where I would push you. And I'd say, look, you need to jump in both feet right up to the throat. Provide something else. We're piloting some competitions at the moment, back end of this season, to take place within a club environment aimed at younger athletes, uh, typically. Athletes within a club can do run, a jump, a throw, all on, all on a club night, but we'll provide with the scoring system. It's aimed at rewarding improvement rather than absolute distance jumped or thrown or time run. So we'll try that. We do have a very packed competition calendar, hence why we're looking at midweek for these, for these events in the first instance. And the hope is they go well and it will drive change. We cannot at the moment tell, for example, uh, the British Athletics League, we're scrapping you. Well, we could do that, but all of our volunteers would probably be quite upset about that. I completely agree with what you're saying, that if we know that there are formats that need to change, we need to work really hard to make sure that they do change. Round the corner from my house, there is a large supermarket chain. Over the railway, 100 yards away, is another large supermarket chain. And to, a, to its other left is another large supermarket chain. Do they look at each other and go, oh, let's not put a supermarket that close. We don't upset that chain. No, it's a competitive market. There's 150 kids in a club. It's like 40 will go there. Another 40 could go there. Is it the same volunteers? Well, you know, if you don't put it out there, you won't create the change. For me, I'm just, that's why I'm saying you need to jump in and provide something. If, there's, if there are clashes, there will always be clashes. I mean, England Athletics, we're a membership body though. Yes, I think we do need to be decisive. We don't want to be going against the wishes of our members either. I do agree with you. It's about providing different opportunities and let people choose what's what's best for them. I would say that one thing that could contribute to the reason why kids or athletes don't want to continue could be like uh, the incentive of why are we actually doing this. We always make a joke at training like when training sessions are horrible we go why are we doing this? And then you kind of have to think of what is the reason, like what's the whole point of this? Obviously for me, I can go, okay, well, I know that I'm good. I know that I'm going to hopefully make Olympics, hopefully make world champs, etc. But there's other athletes in my group who maybe don't have the same goals or maybe don't, it's not as realistic for them. But I do think that there's just not enough incentive with competitions. You go all this way, you win a competition, maybe even come six and then you get nothing. You drive all the way home. Oh yeah, I got another number on my power of 10. And then it can kind of become this like long-winded thing of you don't actually know why you're doing it. Like, for example, I remember when I broke the record at under 17 national champs, I got a voucher, Start Fitness, and it was a £100 voucher, and I was so happy. I was like, oh my gosh, like, I've got a £100. It wasn't a £100, but it just felt like I've actually got something. I can get trainers and get something. Because at that time, in the club, there's a box of spikes, and I was using spikes from that box. Athletics is a relatively cheap-ish sport compared to others, but it can be hard for a lot of athletes. You win a competition, you get a voucher to get trainers. Like, that can just motivate you enough to continue, and that kind of answers the question of why am I doing this? So incentives, Naomi's just uh, touched on one incentive. 
Can we think round the table of organisations that might be doing this already, doing it well, cite some examples, or what more could we do, either as England Athletics, UKA, home countries, or local providers to incentivise athletes to stay in the sport? Prize money is one particular angle from that point of view. But it, if you give prize money out, you're only giving prize money to the winners. So if you look at the US trials, there is prize money. And people are saying, oh, we should have prize money at the England champs, the British champs. You're fundamentally going to give it to the same people. It's the first three across the line or it's the first eight. What about the other 16 that were involved in the event? How do you incentivize them? So is it as simple as giving them a certificate? Is it as simple as actually the coach just saying, great job, supported the team and the team manager saying the same? The other thing that the research pointed out was this thing about personal improvement. So, you know, the power of 10 at the moment sort of ranks it by pure performance. But is there other measures that we can use to show somebody actually I might be ranked 5,000th in the in the country, but actually I've improved massively. So that gives me an incentive and the rest of the world can see my improvement as well. You could reward those who get a certain place by inviting them to train with Naomi for an afternoon or inviting athletes to be at that certain event. And I'm, a, I'm an athlete and I feel like I would be happy to do that if it contributed to supporting young people to stay in the sport. It's hard to try to reward below the top eight and below the finals and maybe rather than just having two people for the 100 meters in an event it's having five or six or seven different heats so that everybody does have a chance to participate because again when I was younger I got pigeonholed into the long jump but if there were maybe three or four or five different heats I would have loved to have gone to an event not just to do the long jump and maybe a relay but to also have the opportunity to do to do the one and the 200. What's motivate them to do the sport in the first place? So some of them are good. They're motivated by that sense of winning and, and feeling good about themselves from improving their performance. You know, I look at other sports and pulling on a team shirt, vest, bit of team kit and performing well for that team is something that motivates some youngsters in other sports. You know, you look at kids playing football, they, you just need to go in Tony's local supermarket, whichever one you choose to go in that day, whoever's got the best offers on. All the kids in their football, cricket, rugby shirts that are proud to be wearing those kits for the rest of the day. So for some people, it might be vouchers, it might be monetary reward. For others, it's that place in the team and it's being able to be contributing to a team that really motivates them. I remember seeing, um, it was actually Neve Emerson, when I, before I represented um, GB, she posted a picture of all the kit on her bed because she went to a competition. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. Like, I want to do something like that. But even before then, just when I was representing Greater Manchester for the first time for English schools, like even putting on that horrible orange and blue vest, I was still so proud to know that I'm representing the whole of um, Greater Manchester. And the same with um, when I did school games, representing the Northwest. Just when you represent, it's always an amazing feeling, no matter what level it is. Even your club, everything, it's, it's really good. But I will say, kind of going back to an old point, sorry, I think, I don't know why we um, we kind of encourage fun for 4 to 11 year olds, encourage a bit of fun at under 17, and then by the time you get to under 20, it's like, okay, no, it's not fun anymore, you're serious, and I'll take it seriously, or oh, that's it. It's five years since I did SIAB, the school's um, international competition, and I kind of did a throwback, posting pictures of when we were um, we got, we got pizza at the competition, and we're all having fun, we went to the party, we were eating crisps in the stands, just stuff like that, actually just being children and having fun, and one of my friends messaged me saying, oh, I miss when athletics was fun. And I'm like, this is only five years ago. It doesn't leave, it doesn't leave because, you know, some competitions are still fun. Manchester International thought that was quite fun, but there's other ones so serious and it's not, it's not fun anymore. 
I absolutely loved gymnastics. I loved the floor, I loved trampolining. What kept me in that sport was the progression, the 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 fact that, you know, I was learning a new move next the next week, maybe I could do a backflip and then all of the different activities that were involved in that. But as soon as I was told, oh, you're a bit too tall for this. Uh, looks like you're maybe you're not going to be able to progress to where you want to be. I was just like, well, why? I mean, this is fun. But at the same time, this is a lot of dedication and time and effort that you're putting into it. And obviously, I've got friends there and things like that. But if, if I can perform better and know that I'm going to progress in athletics, why would I continue pursuing gymnastics when, you know, you're telling me that this is the shelf life? I'm done. Why would I do that? People don't want to be sad by losing and therefore it's difficult. As a coach, my job is to look at the intrinsic, extrinsic motivations that there are. And extrinsically, yeah, outwardly, yeah, you've lost. But internally, you go, you were better at this. This is what, and that's what you have to do as a coach. And we're making progress towards particular points. So a coach, I think, has a massive part to play. Family has a massive part to play because... The parents are the nutritionist, the bank, the transportation, everything for children. But they can be the most positive influence or they can be a very destructive influence of, oh, you lost to Johnny today, therefore, oh, that's not very good. No, but I did a PB and, oh, well, you didn't win, you didn't come back with a medal. Those kind of internal indicators happen really early. I've got a six-year-old daughter. Trust me, she did an athletics meeting and I thought long and hard about what was I going to say at the end of the meeting? And I said, oh, did you have fun? And she went, yeah, but I didn't win. And I was like, yeah, but you enjoyed it, didn't you? Yeah, but I, I didn't get a medal. And I'm fighting this with a six-year-old thinking, how can I put a positive spin on something to a six-year-old? If, but you had fun and you ran around and she got a certificate. But again, she's already at the age of six judging herself as winner-loser. And for me, I'm just like, as long as you're smiling. And there was a smile. So I'm like, you can let's continue to go back. And because the first reason you come into the sport, forget the money and the rest of it, you come in because it's fun and you got friends. Now, as that progresses, you have to look at different things and how that moves forward. So it's interesting. It's a multi-layered problem. I think all you can do is try and tick some of those boxes. For those who don't know, I did retire in 2016 and I came back to the sport (laughs) two years later because I thought, you know, there's unfinished business. I feel like there's more to give. And again, it points back to that idea of progress. If I did not think I could perform better than my 680 personal best, I would not be back in the sport right now. If I didn't think I could make a world championship team, an Olympic Games team, an Olympic Games final, I would not be back in this sport. Let's just say you were a 420 long jumper. Are the incentives there for them? There's younger jumpers or jumpers who are older than me and they're jumping 550s and 580s. And I ask them that same question and they just say, you know, because they believe they can do better. And it it still harks back to the fact that you believe that there's something more in your legs and there's something more you can give. And they also enjoy it. They enjoy participating in the sport. In 2016, I lost the joy. It was not fun for me anymore. I'd had three surgeries and I just felt like I was failing all the time and that I was, wasn't able to progress. That was my challenge. I was like, how am I able to progress when since 2012 I've had surgery after surgery after surgery and I've not been able to compete and fulfill my potential? And so as much as we talk about these extrinsic motivations of financial incentives, of even of getting a vest and things like that for representing your county or your country or even your club. Do I get to travel? I love to travel. So that's fun. Even traveling around the country was fun at one time. And so, yeah, that's what brought me back into it, I think.
I always say that the day I stop enjoying athletics is the day I will stop doing the sport. I don't feel like I owe anybody anything apart from myself. I just do it because I genuinely love triple jumping and I love doing it. Um, and I love seeing small improvements. And even if I don't improve, just going to competitions is always fun. And trying your best and seeing what you can do is always something that will keep me coming back. So, yeah. Just another thing that's quite interesting, it probably follows on from Abigail, like your statistics show in your in England athletics has study that there seems to be growth at the under 23 level beyond under 23 there seem to be more athletes seem to be coming back to athletics and back to track that's quite an interesting factor that people will dip out for a little while now maybe the pressures of study and the rest of it but Abigail seems to be one of those people who I needed a break and then I come back in so there's some fascinating trends and to ask some questions around that and, and get some substance of that will be good. Whilst track and field participation has dipped slightly, social running has continued to increase. Do you think there are any things we can take from the growth of social running in terms of accessibility and so on that we could apply to track and field or maybe deployment of volunteers, for instance? You said the word there, accessibility. So things like park run, you can just rock up on a, a Saturday, you can just step outside your door and run, step outside your door and do an event. You know, is there something really simple that we can put in place that keeps the fun aspect but make sure that those athletes who have got performance capability can do their performance? Some really good examples of open meetings where you can enter on the night, just go and rock up. So round this neck of the woods at Trafford AC, Naomi's club, you know, you get loads of athletes turning up to that event every Tuesday. They just pay their money and, and away we go. Uh, and Watford do that down down south very well. And there are other good examples around the country. Charmwood do it in the, in the East Midlands Track and field different to recreation running, as we know. I fancy a triple jump today. I'll dig a pit in my back garden. You know, you also need qualified officials from a health and safety point of view when you're looking at things like heavy throws. It's never going to be as accessible as recreational running because you do need that facility and you need people who know what they're doing to make sure it's running in a safe way. But there are flexible ways of doing the sport that already exist, and it's about increasing the number of those, I think. We are actually, as England Athletics, launching a a program for four to 11 year olds which in the long term will hopefully introduce those elements of fun multi-events called phonetics that will be starting phonetics fun athletics uh, and those of you involved in linguistics will know that's a blend but anyway um so the so the idea is that if we can start with those youngsters by the time they become teenagers in, in a few years time they will have a level of expectation and we need to be making sure that if we if we are as we expect to be successful with that program that we can continue people through into their teenage years Right, drawing to an end, to a close. Final question for everyone. If there was one single thing you could do, Dean, to address this matter, what would it be? Tony alluded to it before. I think we've got to take a lead in this area. And leading doesn't necessarily mean dictating, but it does mean being really clear about what we think is the right way forward and bringing the sport with us in delivering that, that change that's required in this area. And that's not to say there are no place for leagues or there are no place for independent competition providers, but it's getting everybody to understand that if we don't do something, our sport's going to shrink even more than it already is doing. Working with coaches, it's the whole shebang really, but we need to be leading that effort in my view. Where British athletics come into this, this discussion is around competition calendar planning and helping make sure that we've got a really easy to understand, and I'm laughing because it's an extremely complicated area, but we've got a clear and easy to follow competition structure. British athletics have got a massive role to play in coach education, as we know already. But in terms of direct delivery, it's England athletics, it's it's the other home countries, and it's, it's our members, it's our clubs. Ultimately, the sport 
operates because our clubs exist. You know, we don't have clubs, we don't have athletes, we don't have coaches, or, or we do, but it's, it's far less well coordinated. And officials, education and development, because we don't have officials who don't have competitions. But in terms of affecting change and delivering competitions at a domestic level, I think that's us. That's us and our clubs. So I would get all the competition riders in the country, and I include British athletics in that, in a room. It might take one day, it might take five days, but actually let's look at all the reviews that we've done over the years, look at the research, and then come out at the end of that one day or the end of five days and say, this is what we're going to do around competition. And that would be making sure there is a social, fun, five-a-side football type offer for those who probably recognise at 15, 16 years of age that I'm not going to be an Olympian, get a vest maybe at some level. So I think competition massively impacts on our retention. I think I'd have to say it's part of my role of UK Members Council in coaching that really you'd have to look at coach education and a revamp and elements within coach education that are about retention, understanding coach-athlete relationship, not just plan for a year, plan for a career, and how you select competition. I see a lot of youngsters who are just competing way too much, and that's what burns them out. Every week's a competition and stuff. So there's elements of the softer skills that need to be added to the coach education pathway, I think. But, you know, the coach is a massive influence on people's careers. So I think that's important. Abigail? For the one thing, I really liked the idea of maybe just increasing the number of rounds of 100 and 200 and the different events. So I, I liked the as well. I like the idea of if you're going to do an 800 metres, then also do a jump and a throw. So I think that would keep younger athletes more engaged. And Naomi? I will stick with my point about incentives as well. Just providing like a little reward for the athletes who might come from a bit harder backgrounds and have really tried to make it to the level that they're at and just to give them something um, as well as a medal just to keep them going. You'll be pleased to know your time is up. Thanks everyone for their contributions. I hope that listeners will find some of the content really helpful and uh, we wish you all the very best. Thank you. Thank you.